Hi, I'm Bex Dillon and welcome to this podcast, Conversations on Faith and Equality. In this podcast, me and my co-host, my dad, Nikki Gumbel, interviewed Karina, who is a friend of my brother's. She is Romanian and she was born and brought up in Romania, but now works in the city in London in finance and has been really successful. And so we got to talk to her about what it's like being a woman in that sector where she's often the minority, but also got to talk about what it's like being a Romanian in the UK and some of the kind of inequalities that some Romanians face. And I don't know about you, but I felt like in the build up to the Brexit vote, we saw this really ugly side of the UK and some of the views that people held. And there was a lot of discrimination felt towards particularly Eastern Europeans and Romanians being part of that. And so I wanted to have this conversation with her, partly because she's very impressive in where she's got to in her career. And also not only is she very successful, but she's also started this civil action group trying to support lots of different charities that she talks about. But it's also to have this conversation with people that hopefully helps us to build different understandings of groups of people of minorities. And it's actually in hearing an individual story that we maybe realise where there are some biases or some kind of conclusions that we can come to about different groups of people. And hopefully as we have these conversations, in this podcast that the conversations will continue and change people's views and perspectives of different people and in the end hopefully that will help to have a more open loving kind society so i hope you enjoy this podcast and i hope that it's interesting and raises different questions and conversations for you so here you go thank you so much karina it's so nice to actually get to talk to you thank you for giving us the time that was what sounds like a very busy life that you have um can you tell us a bit about where you were born and grew up so I I was born during the communist regime um and it's funny because one of my earliest childhood memories is walking into um walking into my parents' living room and seeing on TV the trial where Ceausescu was basically, um, you know, condemned to uh, condemned to death and then executed. That was like, it was on TV and I remember seeing it. So it was quite, it was quite a weird memory to have yeah. a child. Um, but I, I didn't grow up in that time. So I grew up immediately after that mm-hmm. um so you know the country you know I, I'm, I'm telling you i grew up extremely shielded and, and privileged and protected but my parents did an incredible job at at keeping us in this little you know happy bubble um where we where we grew up but the country and and everything around us was changing at an insane pace i mean you have to imagine a, a whole country of 20 million people that was, um, you know, for half a century almost, 45 years was under the communist regime. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very, very incredibly bad um, concept and, and just really a, a very, very bad thing, communist in general. I, I, I think I probably lack the words to describe how bad it, it is. Um, what was so bad about it for your parents, for example? Uh, so for and again this is secondhand experiences because i never really experienced it per se but i think just to give you a little bit of background so um romania was a capitalist country um when the communists so after the the second world war and then it kind of fell um under russian protection so to speak and with that came um communist the communist regime and so long story short what is or what my parents always perceived as really, really bad about it is um, a bunch of things. First, planned economy is just not working um, and worked incredibly poorly. Um, you know, you did factories in the middle of nowhere just to create some fake jobs that didn't really work. When the communists came to power, the first thing they did was purge essentially society as it was previously. And that meant getting rid of um, a lot of people they didn't like, um, intellectuals for one, 
Um, so there is, for example, there is a project, a very large project built back then. It's, it's, um, it's a huge infrastructure project, actually. It was built um, in between the Danube Delta. Uh, so the Danube is a really large river in Europe. Mm -hmm. and it ends in Romania. It flows into the Black Sea. And they built this giant um, canal between the Danube Delta, linking the Danube Delta to, um, uh, to the Black Sea. And they basically sent pretty much all intellectuals that uh, had previously criticized the Communist Party or um, just didn't agree with something. Or, you know, if you didn't agree with someone in the Communist Party, you would just basically disappear and just show up in that canal. And some people came back and other people never came back. Um, so that was, that was really, really bad. Um, of course, planned economy, like I say, um, agriculture that is centrally planned just doesn't work for many, many reasons. Um, people have tried, I think, for centuries, a couple of times. It never went well, didn't go well in the situation either. Um, and then there are other things as well, like, um, you know, for example, at some point, such huge infrastructure projects need to be paid for. Um, and when you realize that your, um, your, your obligations exceed what you can actually pay, um, I think what, what happened essentially is the country had to pay a lot of debt after building a lot of infrastructure. And, uh, and unfortunately, because um, the currency of the country wasn't worth that much naturally, uh, they had to pay in kind. So in, in agricultural products, in industry products, in, in manufacturing products. Um, and a lot of things just became really unavailable in, within the country. Um, so, you know, in the 80s, I think that's, that's my understanding. That's the time where it got really bad. Um, in the 80s, a lot of things were just not available. Um, so my parents used to tell me these stories that um, for them um, it was really difficult at some point when they were young to newlywed um, to get hold of food or um, or baby food for that matter um, mm. so medication was you know a luxury mm. um, so it was a very impoverished society and not just from a material perspective, but also sort of from a spiritual perspective as well. Um, you weren't allowed to disagree with anyone in the party. You weren't allowed to do something that um, disagreed in any way with the party line. And that kind of went across all levels and, 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 uh, and spheres of society. So, you know, you couldn't say anything bad about your boss, if your boss was a communist party member, because if somebody heard, you might get fired or, you know, your kids wouldn't be allowed to go to university or something like that. Yeah. So it was a very... Um, but yeah. your parents managed to survive, like, in doing what they were doing in that... Yeah. Being, like, in education, being in the university, they were okay, they managed to cope with that sort of society. Yeah, so... Uh, my parents were both relatively young. That's why, you know, my, my memories of it are not that great because, mm. um, you know, I, I was just a baby back then. But my parents were both university professors and the way they managed to essentially put food on the table is they, um, they gave private lessons, which was illegal. And so um, a lot of the time, you know, instead of getting paid in money, because money just wasn't that valuable, you couldn't buy that much with it. You would go to the store, but there was nothing to buy. They would get paid in, in food. Um, so yeah, that was, um, amazing. it was very, very, very difficult times. Wow. Very difficult That's times. Amazing. And then you've gone from that and that kind of growing up in that environment. And now you're in London working in finance. Is that right? Yeah, so like obviously things changed massively after yeah. the fall of the communists in 1989. Um, and, you know, after that, my, my parents and a lot of other people really seized the opportunity to determine their own life and started mm -hmm. businesses. And the country really started changing at a break, breakneck pace, like an insane pace. Imagine a complete like closed economy just flipping from one day to the other to a completely open um open economy, open society, 
just crazy if you think about it. Um, and yeah, um, you know, like I said, my, my family moved to Bucharest. Uh, my, my parents continued their company and I um, ended up going to university in Vienna and I studied economics in, in Vienna and in New York. I started my career in investment banking at uh, Goldman Sachs in London, actually. Um, and then I worked in venture capital. I worked in management consulting. And now I've been working in investing uh, for nine years. Hmm. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. And, you know, you've had kind of come from that background and now you've been in these kind of worlds of Goldman and Sachs and all this stuff. How have you found it as a woman and as a Romanian woman being in, in that environment? So I think, I think there's two perspectives really. Um, And I'm not sure how well I'm able to articulate it, but I think it's really two perspectives. One is the perspective of um, a woman. And then the other one is, I think, the, the perspective of a, of a Romanian. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, from a perspective of being a woman, um, when, uh, when we meet people, you know, we go to a party or something like that. And my, um, my husband gets asked what, um or even in church actually and my my husband gets asked like what what he does for a living and he says oh you know I have a startup um and I never get asked (laughs) which is really bizarre and so my husband always has to say oh my work my wife you know she works in finance and she she's actually the breadwinner of the family and people always find that funny but they don't really know how to place it they don't really know what to do with that information and so I think it's crazy that that still happens that people still yeah. come yeah 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 i think it's um it's much more than than i would have thought a few years ago mm-hmm. um i think also the reality is i was kind of prepared for this by my mom ever since growing up because she she worked in tech i mean what was tech back then um and it in general and um she always kind of made a huge point out of prepare me for working in an environment where women are just not that present. So for me, it's not that crazy. I find it hilarious still to this day, um, but I'm kind of used to it, um, even if that sounds a little bit weird. And so I think the other, the other thing is I've always been, um, you know, working essentially for American companies ever since I started my career. And so looking Back at that, it was actually quite interesting because the places where I worked were most of the time very meritocratic. So, you know, I was given um, really significant opportunities by my colleagues and my bosses um, wherever I went. And that is not to say that I didn't grab them and work, you know, extremely hard to to make those things happen. But it was very meritocratic. um, And I was given, you know, as much as I could chew, essentially. Mm Um, and yeah, I, I, I like getting my feet wet. I like, you know, starting new things. I like trying out new things, even if, you know, for the first time I'm usually in way over my head. Um, but yeah, it turned out really well for me. Um, and so even to this day, for example, you know, when I, when I work on a deal, for example, it's probably 90% all men, um, a lot of the time I go somewhere, I talk to people and I'm the only woman. Mm. Um, and it, it happens. The, you know, the, the board of the company where I work, it's, it's only men, not a single senior woman. And it always amuses me when, uh, you know, when there's a board meeting and I, I see who's going in. And I, I, on the one hand, it irks me. On the other one, I kind of like it because it, it reminds me of why I'm doing what I'm doing and what I'm reaching for. And so it's, it's always a really good reminder to be exposed to these kind of environments and to see what the reality is on the ground. Um, Do you, do you think that's true? Like that the men are there on the board because they've, you know, they've worked hard, they've done well, and they've been doing it for a while or, or are, are there sort of barriers and obstacles for women to get to that position? So 
I have to be really honest in the positions that I have been in, I mm-hmm. never felt discriminated against as a woman and not at all. Um, I, you know, there are a lot of situations where, you know, the guys were going out for drinks or cigar night or whatever, and I wasn't included in that. And mm-hmm. obviously that bothered me. But at the end of the day, in the situations I was put in and the jobs I was put in at the end of the year, which, you know, in finance, that's what really matters, like how mm. you get evaluated and paid at the end of the year. Mm. I always felt like it was very transparent and meritocratic and people actually put aside their personal preferences or whoever they were, you know, hanging out with on the weekends and were fair. Um, so from that perspective, I think I was also very mm. fortunate. Um, I don't think I, you know, people would discriminate in my company because I'm a woman, not at all. I really don't think that. Um, but I do hear it from, from other places. And I think people tend to hire people that, you know, look like them, feel like them, talk like them. And so but even that, what you're saying, you know, the cigar night things, often those things that are much more subtle play quite a huge role though because it's the people that they're they're hanging out they're having drinks they're talking about things and that can really help someone advance in their career or not advance in their career if they're not kind of involved in those things sometimes it's the more subtle things that make it more difficult yeah yeah no and and I'm not gonna you know deny that um I think it's it's all about finding your own style um Mm -hmm. and understanding what what it is that you can do what it is that you are not willing to do and then align that a little bit with what the values are that other people are looking for because ultimately um i i I honestly think you know it's it's great to be able to to work in finance but it's it's even more important to be able to to work for people that value what you do Mm. and value your qualities and and what you bring to the table ultimately if Mm. you don't work somewhere where you know the only thing that really matters is what you bring to the table or maybe 70 percent or 80 percent of what really matters is what you bring to the table and what what value you bring to the company it's probably not the right place Mm. and Karina you said that um, there were two two things as a woman and then as a Romanian Uh, so uh, Talk about the second thing as well. You've talked about being as a woman, but what about as a Romanian? Yeah, so I think, so I have to be honest again, um, probably way too honest here, but um, so I I work in Mayfair and I live in Soho in London. Um, I have a certain lifestyle um, and surround myself with a, you know, certain type of people so if I said that I am the kind of you know I I am in the in the society bucket that that gets discriminated against or experiences racism on a daily basis or something like that would be really hypocritical and I you know that's just not the case so I think for me personally I haven't really experienced this Mm -hmm. uh, certainly not at work Um, but I'm very very aware of what's going on um, around me. Mm-hmm. And so it never affected me, but I did notice it. So I remember this, um, I have this friend um, who, uh, who um, I used to go to, to the Oxbridge club all the time. If you know, if you know it, but they have this club on the, on the mall. I don't know if I used to do it, but they used to do like once a month, like a young members reception thing. It was like a champagne reception. It was it was fun you know um, my husband and I had just moved to London so we we're like let's just go you know it's a social thing maybe we'll meet fun people or whatever so we started going um, and I I had very high expectations of the people there because you know it was people from from Cambridge and Oxford I was like wow these people like you know they must be super cool they know what they're talking about it's gonna be so exciting to be there and I I remember um, and it happened a couple of times actually we we went there and they're all like obviously both my husband and I don't speak British English. Um, so they, they would ask us like, so where are you guys from? And my husband would say, I'm from Austria. And everyone was like, oh, wow, I love Vienna. That's amazing. And then they would ask me and I would say, I'm from Romania. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> we were surprised. And I'm like, I really don't know what to do with that, with that, with that information, with that tone of voice. It was very confusing. Um, or, you know, I, I remember this, this one time, it was actually in the same place. Um, 
this lady um, was talking to my husband. I, I didn't I, I, I didn't happen to be there, um, but this lady was talking to my husband and she had worked for the EU in Brussels. And so they were talking a little bit about policy and, um, and at some point, you know, the discussions there are at a very, very intellectual kind of level. And, uh, and at some point she said to, to Maurizio, oh, I love Europe. Europe is absolutely fantastic. I love every single country in Europe, except Romania and Bulgaria. <laughs> and, and so my, my husband was like, really, why is that? And she was like, well, you know, they, uh, they just, they just don't, I just don't feel like they belong in Europe. You know, they, um, they just come to the UK and then, you know, they come to take all the benefits. Um, and then my husband, I, I don't know exactly what kind of a reaction she was waiting for, but my husband was like, oh, that's really interesting. Cause you know, my wife is Romanian and she probably, <laughs> you know, supports multiple families with her taxes in the UK. And then that was probably the end of the conversation. But it's, <laughs> but it's, it's stuff like that, that, you know, I, I, I laugh about it um, because I'm in a position to laugh about it. But I can imagine that a lot of people are not. Yeah, I, I lived in um, Italy for a while and I remember someone arriving at work and I, I worked for, for a tailor at the time. So we like worked underground and they were all, they'd been sewing since they were sort of 14 and they were in their 60s apart from me and um but they sort of totally accepted me they're all Italian apart from me and then but there was a Romanian girl who worked in the kind of front of the um tailor and they were so rude about her because she was Romanian and they'd be like foreigner foreigner and I'd be like but I'm I'm a foreigner and they're like no no you're from London that's okay she's <laughs> Romanian it was always and I remember them arriving at work and being like oh this like they had this word in Italian which means sort of gypsy they're like this gypsy got on the bus and they sort of complaining about this gypsy I was like were they actually a gypsy and they're like no no just a foreigner like don't know where they're from and often it, it would be this sort of you know eastern european was not like i was always called the foreigner but they would distinguish oh no no you're an okay foreigner because you're from london and they'd say it in this like london like <laughs> london is okay but everywhere else is not okay but nearly all my friends being not being from Milan I made so many friends who are foreign but and I was often accepted by the Italians but my friends were sort of like oh don't don't hang out with them because they're not the right sort of foreigners so see that like so we're often doing the same jobs and with same thing but just because I'm from the country that you think has got more whatever I'm acceptable and they're not so it seemed very yeah and I see it in the UK I mean just before speaking to you I thought let you know so much of what we'd been talking about before and thinking you know Romanians contribute all these things and and think about all that you're contributing in your work I was like what what do people think then let's like google daily mail Romanians because that will sort of tell you a little bit about what daily mail readers and the like headlines that come up of and how people is sort of Romanians in prison and you, you see it and you're like okay this is why certain amount of people also have set views on it whereas like you know you're saying some of the things that you've been involved in with your civil action group rowing you and you know you're supporting all these different things not only are you doing all that you're doing in your job but you've also started this group with lots of other Romanians we just explain a bit about what that is and how it started sure and i mean to be to be honest like like to to the point that you had before you know like i know a lot of romanians in in london specifically and you know they are there are a lot of things you know they're i don't know they're they're the bankers and they're bakers and they're cleaners and they're architects and they're you know construction people and they're also hedge fund people um mm-hmm. There, there are really a lot of things. Um, I, I don't know anyone who, you know, comes to the UK um, or anywhere else for that matter for, you know, enjoying the, the good life. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I know of people that, um, that, you know, are leaving their families in Romania and search for a better paid job to better be able to provide for, mm-hmm. uh, for the family because, it is a developing economy. So, you know, they are looking for better ways to provide for their families. And trust me, like 
seeing seeing families where parents work abroad and children are raised by aging grandparents and difficult conditions is really sobering and and no one no one does that for for fun so Mm. you know it it always strikes me as 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 weird when i when i hear you know those comments that people people just sit around on benefits because it's just not my yeah not my experience Mm. you know i always think that you know the person that's fixing me coffee at um at pride might be romanian or you know the nurse taking care of of our parents or or other people's parents might be romanian you know the the chefs in our favorite restaurants might be romanians but also like you know architects that are designing roads and hospitals and are investing pension funds and Mm. have i don't know successful construction business whatever it is um they might all be romanians Mm. um i think I was looking this up as well, actually. So there in the UK, um, there's roughly 2.2 million Eastern Europeans and the largest groups are um, Polish, Romanians and Lithuanians. And I think Mm. there are about 400,000 Romanians in the UK Mm. at the moment. And it's really, it's it's all across the board. It's literally all across the board. I, you know, I've also read a lot of articles, probably the same sources as you, (laughs) you know, about um, studies around discrimination and like kids that get bullied in school Mm -hmm. with teachers sometimes doing or not doing anything about it. It's very strange Mm -hmm. um, and a little bit saddening. Mm. So uh, say about the civil action group that you start. Did Did you start that? Yeah, um, so that was um, that was me not really knowing what I was getting into, frankly. Um, wouldn't be the first time. So um, basically, a few years ago, um, in Romania, there was a huge tragedy. So 65 young people, teenagers mostly, died in a fire in, in a club. And that really was a huge turning moment for Romanian civil society for whatever reason. I think people at some point just had enough um, of, you know, they had enough of bad government, they had enough of corruption. And so that erupted in giant, um, giant protests. And um, those protests eventually pivoted to target corruption and bad administration, um, which, you know, funny enough was uh, government and administration that was voted in power if you can talk about uh, you know, legitimate power when it's below 40% voter participation. But anyway, mm. and um, as a result of those protests, um, there was basically a completely new generation of, of leaders in Romania that emerged from that. And, you know, those were people that studied and worked abroad in the US and, and Western Europe, you know, from, I don't know, Harvard and MIT to Ashuse and, um, and Oxford and Cambridge. And they all kind of had a vision for the country um, to be much more than just a source of low cost labor. Um, And so that kind of marked a moment that started a lot of grassroots movements that some of them eventually became political parties. um, And actually, you know, one of the most progressive political parties in the in the European Parliament, as well as the anti-corruption division in in Brussels is actually led by um, by by two Romanians. But so when all these grassroots movements started, one of these founders, um, one of these organizations came to London and gave a pitch. And um, that's how basically this NGO uh, or volunteer group or whatever it is that we started um, kind of came into being. So it, it really started as, um, you know, a group of people. We had never met each other before. And we just decided that it was the right moment to get involved and do something for Romania and for Romanians. And at some, that point, we just happened to be in London. So we decided, you know, there's no point in thinking about, oh, when we're going to go home, if we're going to go home wait it out, see what happens. We're just gonna do something like then and there. And so we got together and thought, okay, um, what can we do? You know, the world is a big place. London is a big place. Romania has a lot of needs. Romanians have a lot of needs. What can we do? And so 
We started relatively small. We started with some, you know, here and there fundraisers. Um, and it took us a very long time, it took us months, probably a year to get to the level where we are now. But essentially, um, we're a group of volunteers and we operate in three pillars. Um, one is education. The, one, the other one is community, building community. And the third one is building a strong team. And um, why education is at the center of what we do is because we believe that you know, education is the only way forward for any country in the world, but especially emerging economies, if you wanna escape the cycle of being a low cost labor country and you know, having fantastic universities, good school, reduce for, for all of that and to build a real economy and a strong society, you need great education, you need uh, very low school dropout rates, all of these things. And so that's why we decided to, to do something about it. And you know, I feel like the task itself is, is insane. Um, and I often sit back and think, I, I don't know why I'm getting into this. This is insane. Um, but then we just try to take it sort of step by step. So what that means sort of from a practical perspective is we do fundraisers to uh, equip schools uh, with IT equipment, um, with furniture. We equip and finance after schools um, that are, you know, as you probably know, a very critical component in, uh, in breaking the cycle of um, school dropout rates. Um, we now with lockdown, we helped a bunch of schools basically get completely online. Um, mm. This week, we send like um, to a school that we're supporting, you know, 50 big headsets because they have, uh, they have tablets to do online school. But um, if there's like, you know, four or five kids in a small house all doing online school at the same time, it's really tough to focus. So yeah, it's sometimes that. like really small, silly things like that that actually make, um, make a huge difference. Though. Make a big difference, yeah. That's amazing. Wow. And how we many? Have you... a, we also have a professional mentoring um, project where we try to connect Romanians from everywhere to talk to, you know, people that are 16 plus to try to open their minds towards what their careers could look like, where they could get in life and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's a huge variety of things. Um, and there's always something cooking. And how many people, how many, how many volunteers are involved? So it fluctuates quite a bit. I think on average, um, somewhere between five and 10 volunteers yeah and how many and and how many people are you helping do you think in in Romania that's a good question I mean we try to quantify every project that we do um I think it varies each each project but I'd say we probably for online school we equipped like 40 kids this year so they could do a school online uh which is a big thing because otherwise they just you know yeah really hard um you know we have another after school where 30 kids go in normal times every day and they get a warm meal and you know um help to do homework and and counseling and that sort of thing mm -hmm. um we also do a lot more practical things like you know we had a fundraiser for an orphanage um in in summer where we did you know from charity runs to raffles to you name it um where there's um, 180 kids um, that we raise money for. So it really, it really varies. Were you at the start of lockdown, are you trying to do something because it was sort of all over the papers that there weren't enough people to pick all the fruit and vegetables. And they did this huge campaign to get people in the UK who were out of work to do it, but really that wasn't really working and they needed the Romanians, all these flights were being chartered to bring people over to do all the fruit picking from Romania. But um, I remember you were, were you sort of looking into some of the conditions that they were being put in as they came over? Yeah. Um, I think that was, that was quite a sobering moment. Um, I mean, I think it, it wasn't just in the UK, first of all. I think it was all, all around Europe. Um, and 
it was just the craziness of the situation. You know, all countries were in lockdown and it wasn't lockdown like now, it was like yeah. real lockdown. Um, and then you had like these planes, like charter planes, like you say, you know, people coming from a different country to pick fruit, like the whole thing was insane. Mm. Um, and- Because there'd so, been no flights going, like no one was able to, and then suddenly these The borders flights. were closed, yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it's something that I've been really struggling with um, for a while now. Um, the way these people get treated actually, because you have, and you know, we, we talked about this at length with Henry as well, you have multiple levels of, you know, mistreating people when it comes to labor relations. You have, um, obviously the, the worst is sexual exploitation, um, but there's many levels until you get to that point. Mm -hmm. there, there's bonded labor and there's just, just pure labor exploitation, mm -hmm. um, you know, where people get taken away their passports, don't know their rights, don't speak the language, um, mm -hmm. may or may not get paid. Like we've heard of cases and obviously our small volunteer group, you know, there's only so much we can do, but we have heard of cases where, you know, people like they work and then just don't get paid in the end and they don't know their rights. They don't know where they can go. They don't know what recourse they have. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's very sobering um, when you, for me personally, when I go to, to Whole Foods, the, the supermarket where I live across the street from, and I'm thinking like, who picked this asparagus or these strawberries mm. or whatever it is? And like, is there no like industry standards? So I'll pay more, but I know that the people that actually were involved in producing this were fairly treated. Mm. Um, and I think it's just, it's a supply chain issue, right? Because consumers don't know about it. Frankly, they don't really care about it that much. Um, and on the other hand, people stand to, some people stand to profit from it and other people just don't even know that they have rights. Mm. So it's um, it's I think it's an it's a real issue, but I I I'm afraid not a lot of people are are aware of it or even care about it. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. And I guess it just shows how much like from every level the role that Romanians have played in the UK, like the and the impact that like going forward with Brexit what life's going to look like when for such a long time that's just one of the sectors where we've been relying on people on immigration and people haven't quite seen the impacts of it and coronavirus hits and the borders close and and people are panic buying and then the farmers aren't able to <laughs> pick their yeah. fruit you know people were buying mainly loop paper but you know we still needed our fruit and vegetables and and the kind of yeah, thinking at desperate times, how they kind of, everyone seems to look for their own needs. It's like, yeah. how do we get the food that we need? Doesn't matter how that happens and who's who's risking, you know, getting ill or being put in difficult conditions that people in the UK aren't willing to do, but we'll bring people in from other countries and we'll put them on the farms and make them work yeah. all the time. And I was reading one article that was saying someone who who works as a fruit picker saying because we do this work people look at us like we're treated like slaves so they treat us as though we are slaves and look down on us so think if you've come and you're being forced into these conditions which are where you feel like you're almost in slavery and then people are treating you in that way as though you're kind of the lowest in society it all sort of makes everything worse and worse really and it's how do we break the cycle yeah Mm. yeah i mean in in other countries for example um because obviously i was i was interested so i you know i did my my google research and i i realized that in, in some countries they have a system where it, it's basically some sort of certification you know, like you can get organically certified you get certified so that um whoever buys your product and sees that particular label on the product knows that um labor relations were fairly treated and you know these people mm -hmm. get protected and there there are very strict rules about what you can and cannot do with your um, employees or seasonal workers how much you have to pay them mm -hmm. healthcare, all that stuff um so you know hopefully that's you know going to be a system that is going to 
expand mm. a little bit more in the in the future all around because it's a problem everywhere right it's not just the uk mm. um, it's everywhere you have you know a country that has gotten beyond a certain wealth level close enough to a country that hasn't and so there's this seasonal labor migration um yeah, California is probably not that different. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. And you, uh, just talk for a moment about faith, because you were brought up in like communist, uh, well, your, your parents were brought up in communist Romania, where presumably uh, faith was not even allowed, really. Um, so I honestly am not sure. Mm, to what extent it was or it wasn't allowed. Um, I know that the only religion or church, I guess, that was permitted was the Orthodox Church. Yeah. Um, I actually grew up Catholic. Um, so I'm, I'm baptized Orthodox, but I kind of grew up Catholic. Hmm. Um, Your parents were Catholic? My mom was. Okay. Yeah, my mom was. Um, is, sorry. And... Um, yeah, so Romania is like Catholic Orthodox, and then there's also like a kind of Muslim group as well. Yeah, I mean, like there's, there's a lot of minorities. So you have, you know, the vast majority is Orthodox, um, and then you have Catholics, and then you have um, Evangelical Christians, you have Pentecostal Christians, you have you have um, you know the Jewish minority, you have the Muslim minority. So it's it's a it's a mix. Mm. But probably 80, 90% are, um, are Orthodox. Okay. Um, or in paper, at least. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's basically how I grew up. Um, and then um, my husband and I decided to do Alpha a couple of years ago, which was really fun. Um, Just say how that, how that came about, Karina. Do you want the whole story or <laughs> give us the whole story, Karina? Um, so it was, I mean, my husband and I, we really work a lot. And at that point we were working a lot more, um, or it felt like we were working a lot more. Um, and I think, um, you know, we were at a point in our life. We had been married for about seven years at that point where um, things were really not going well. Um, he was traveling to New York all the time. So we weren't spending a lot of time together. Um, we had moved to London by then, but we weren't really seeing much of each other. And, um, and we were probably relatively close to, um, to breaking up. And so it was, it was quite a low point. Um, maybe that's why I remember that we were working so much. It was, it was definitely a low point in our, both our lives. And so um, this, this one time he was in, in New York on a weekend and he just, you know, walked through some random neighborhood and the guy just said, hey, are you, uh, are you here for, for church? And he was like, no. Um, uh, but, you know, the guy was really insistent and Mercy didn't want to be rude. So he was like, okay, fine. I'll just, you know, I'll go in. And then when he doesn't look, I'll just leave. Um, but then he went in and you know, it, was a, it was a really modern service um, and he, he quite liked it. He liked the music. Then he stayed for the, um, for, for the talk um, and he stayed. And the next day he told one of his, his colleagues at work um, that he had been to a random church in New York. And she was like, how'd you find it? And he was like, not so bad actually. Not what I imagined. Um, <laughs> The last time he had been in the church was um, probably when we got married. And so um, she was like, she was actually from London. And she said, well, if you, if you enjoyed it, you should go to, um, to this church in, uh, in London. It's called HTB. And so, you know, he took that information, parked it in some drawer and just forgot about it for months. And then at some point, um, it was some weekend, you know, we didn't really have any plans. Um, and I remember he had told me about it. So I was like, hey, why don't we try going there? Like, what's the worst that can happen? And so I think they were advertising Alpha. And yeah, we, we decided to do the Alpha, which is a really cool experience. Um, and we also did the marriage course, 
which um, I can promise you saved our marriage. Um, That's amazing. Just pretty cool. Didn't yeah. one of you want to do Alpha and one of you want to do the marriage course? Um, you guys want to do both. Actually, I wasn't really interested in Alpha, <laughs> but Morita was. Um, and so I think I was like, okay, we'll do a deal. We'll do, I'll do Alpha with you if you do the marriage course with me. And there was a little bit of back and forth. And then we decided to do both in the end. And we ended up doing both in parallel, which is crazy because we had never like blocked Mondays and Wednesday evenings out of our like work calendar for anything we we hadn't spent so much time together like in years i think um but it was it was great it was really good i really really enjoyed it it was really good and what was the result of of those two things i mean one we're still together um how many years ago now was that you two and a half years ago so not that long actually hmm and then two, so that was a marriage course, which was fantastic. And, and somehow, <laughs> I don't know how, but somehow we actually ended up in the training material for the marriage course. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was quite funny. Um, but you know, if it helps other people, I think it's a great, great, great tool. I, I would love for it. So good. You're, it's, worth, it's worth doing the marriage course just to watch you two in it. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> But I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's such a great tool. I I I can't praise it enough. It's so well structured and well thought through. Honestly, I think everyone married should do it. Um, at we least Pepper and I did it in lockdown. How did you like it? We loved it. We absolutely loved it. So we've never. I mean, I've always said we've done it, but in it, we did a very sort of early version of it with the Lees before they were doing it. Um, um, and we've done a weekend, we're sort of crammed together, but we've never actually done the marriage course. But because of lockdown, we were able to do, so, because normally Monday, we can't do seven Monday nights in a row or whatever it is. Um, uh, but because of lockdown, it went online, basically. And so we could do it online, we could do it anytime we liked. And so we did, uh, we absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, and and I think it you know it would help any marriage it's just okay. it helped us so you know I think we've been married 42 years so um it's kind of like amazing and it's so as you say it's so brilliantly done and it's such fun and um and you were brilliant in it and then you, you also did, you also did alpha and just say a little bit about that as well so I think the, the reality is I, I had a lot of preconceptions um, and because of the work that I did and the way um, just just the kind of life I was leading, I, I was extremely self-centered um, and I think I was at a point uh, where either you were useful to me or you would get out of my way, but I wouldn't be wasting my time with someone that wasn't in one way or another useful to me. Um, and so it sounds crazy to me now just saying it, but that's kind of what my, my, my value system was. And so, um, I think we went to Alpha for the first night. Moritz was really curious because he really wanted to like know what it's about. Um, but I was really skeptical and I was only there because we had made a deal to do the marriage course. So anyway, I show up and I remember Maurizio called, I was late from work and Maurizio called me and was like, hey, you gotta come quick because there is a queue. And I'm like, we're going to church. What are you talking about? And, and I show up there and there's like this huge tent and lots of people queuing to register. I was like, okay. I thought it's gonna be you know, a bunch of old ladies drinking tea and knitting something maybe. And, and then we go in and I was just, honestly, I was a little bit blown away. Um, I mean, I had known a little bit of HTV by, by that point, but I was blown away by the organization. I was blown away by the setup, like how well everything was structured, everything was thought through, like everything was really professionally run, which put my mind at ease. So I was like, okay, fine. We can, we can spend the evening here. It's going to be fine. Um, but I remember after the first night, I said to Maritza, I don't think I can go back there. And he was like, why? I was like, I don't have anything in common with those people. You know, there's a teacher and an accountant. I don't know what to do with these people. They're like, none of them, you know, 
work in finance or understand the, my world or anything. And he was like, just, just give him one more time. And I'm glad I did because, you know, um, one of those people actually became a really, really good friend of ours. And I, I really changed my value system after that. You know, I, I found people that really liked me um, for who I was and what I was or wasn't for that matter. And it was very weird for me to accept that. But once I did and like really understood what, um, what community is about and that, you know, church is much more about that easy, like creating those bonds and friendships and community and a lot of it just grows out of it. Mm. Um, I think my, my perception of, of church completely shifted and it made a huge difference for us. Mm. And I probably, no, I know I wouldn't have started um, this, um, this volunteer group that I'm part of now had I not had that experience. Mm. Yeah. And um, one question that I, I used to always ask, and then Henry told me that I didn't, that it wasn't a good question to ask. We used to always ask him that what, if you could say there's one the sort of greatest inequality or injustice that you see in the world right now, what would you say that is? Oh, wow. That's a deep question. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's so hard. And I think it also depends on perspectives, right? Mm. Like for me, I really care about um, a lot of things. I couldn't even like really point to one that I think is the, well, maybe, okay, maybe one. Um, I think it's the massively, massively unequal distribution of education around the world. Mm. Because um, what a person makes of his or her life in some part depends on, you know, where they're born and, and, and the circumstances and the family and, and health, a lot of things. But by not giving the same chances through education, I think we're really skewing kind of, I, I'm, be, I'm doing a terrible job at explaining what I wanna say, but- No, I, no, that makes sense. I think education is probably, yeah. and I think it's also, um, you know, mostly education of women, because if you think yeah. about it, like in most countries in the world, women are the ones that raise kids. They're the ones that give to the next generation. They're the ones that bring up young adults. Mm. And if they're not educated, mm. what are they going to give to those kids? Mm. Even if they love them, but mm. may not be enough. Mm. That's really interesting. So interesting. Thank you so much, Karina. Yeah, Karina, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for listening to this podcast, Conversations on Faith Inequality. We hope that you've enjoyed it. Please tell your friends about it, like, subscribe, and hopefully there'll be more coming soon. Bye.